a passel of pomp, and a circus of circumstance. Historic convention coverage from the Pacifica Radio Archives. Every four years as summer ends, the United States turns its attention to two chosen cities. Why? The two cities play host to the two major political party conventions. But what goes on inside these conventions? And why in recent years has so much gone on outside the convention halls? I'm Amy Goodman. The Pacifica Radio Archives, the nation's largest public radio archive, comb through its vaults in an attempt to learn more about the history of party conventions and to also learn how the Pacifica Radio Network covered these conventions over the years. From the protests in Chicago in 1968 to the shadow conventions in 2000, Pacifica has been there, reporting on the goings-on from its uniquely independent perspective. Pacifica's mission is to bring to the public voices often unheard. Only by hearing voices from as many perspectives as possible is the listener able to fully participate in the national debate. And whether those voices belong to the two major parties, the Communist Party of America, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, or the Green Party, Pacifica has tried to put a microphone where no other media sources will. Throughout this program, we'll hear archive sound that both gives us an understanding of the mechanisms that run the party conventions and that also show the growth and development of the Pacifica Radio Network. Let's waste no time measuring the unfortunate man in the White House against our specifications. A woman journalist there said to me, I know nothing of your American politics. Will the convention be, will the sergeant at arms enforce order in the convention? We are selecting the head of the most powerful nation on earth, the man who literally will hold in his hands the power of survival or destruction, of freedom or slavery. Hubert Humphrey was in Atlantic City. The crackers that you voted for were in Atlantic City. What did they do for you when you wanted to sit down? They were quiet. They were silent. They said, don't rock the boat. You might get Goldwater elected. During the first hour of this program, we'll look at conventions from 1936 to 1968. But before we go to the big names, to the voices we all know, like John F. Kennedy and Malcolm X, we need to start at the beginning. We have to ask ourselves, what are the conventions? When did they start? In September of 1831, the Anti-Masonic Party, which existed for the primary purpose of eliminating Freemasonry in the United States, holds the first national nominating convention with a platform and delegates. Two months later, the National Republican Party follows suit and holds their own convention in Baltimore. And in May of the following year, the Democratic-Republican Party also holds a national nominating convention in Baltimore. These nominating conventions take root and go on every four years from then on. Their main function is to bring together representatives of their party or delegates to nominate a candidate for president and vice president and to also debate over and approve a party platform for the next four years. KPFA, Pacifica's first radio station, was founded in 1949, 
but it was not until 1964 that there was a concerted and extensive effort to cover the major party conventions. But the Pacifica Radio Archives has inside its vaults audio dating from the beginning periods of radio in this country. One of the discoveries made inside the vast vault of the archives is a documentary made in 1972 by KPFK producer Mike Hodel about the major party conventions from 1936 to 1972. Here he introduces the 1936 Democratic National Convention. Franklin D. Roosevelt is serving his first full term when the 1936 Democratic Party Convention opens that June morning in Philadelphia. That first evening is three hours of Democratic oratory, an FDR festival, a chronicling of the New Deal, and praise for its accomplishments both real and theoretical. The keynote speaker, the senator from Kentucky, Alvin Barkley, rubs 12 years of Republican failure into the faces of the delegates. Then he scrubs those faces clean with the washcloth of the New Deal and the name of Franklin D. Roosevelt. My friends, who is it that opposes the program of the New Deal? Who is it that raises the black tag of revolt in this great crisis of the American people? Not the farmers, not the laboring man, not the homeowner, not the honest investor, not the children of the nation, not those who desire that their government shall be the agency of all the people rather than to have its powers twisted and warped in behalf of a few of the American people. Then comes Friday, and with it the words of Judge John Mack, who had nominated FDR in 1932. Judge Mack finds some new words, but the theme is the same. He says, I give you as your candidate no longer a citizen of one state, but a son of all 48 states, Franklin D. Roosevelt. The name touches off a demonstration that lasts an hour and four minutes. The meticulous New York Times notes that the 1932 demonstration had lasted 45 minutes. So the stage is set. At 12.42 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Saturday, the president is officially renominated. His running mate, John Nance Garner of Texas, also is renominated. Saturday evening, both men appear at the convention. FDR accepts renomination with the following words. I cannot with candor tell you that all is well with the world. Clouds of suspicion, tides of ill will and intolerance gather darkly in many places. In our own land, we enjoy indeed a fullness of life that is greater than that of most nations. But the rush of modern civilization itself has raised for us new difficulties, new problems, which must be solved if we are to preserve to the United States the political and the economic freedom for which Washington and Jefferson planned and fought.
there is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. So speaks Franklin D. Roosevelt, accepting renomination. It is a prelude to victory in November. FDR would continue. Who is Wendell Wilkie? What are his beliefs? Well, he's the president of the Commonwealth and Southern Corporation, and he gained prominence through his attacks on the Tennessee Valley Authority's competition with his company's interests in the South. As one Washingtonian puts it, he owns two farms and works them. That's ominous. And being from Indiana and a lawyer by profession, there's no doubt he's a presidential candidate. All Indiana lawyers are. Wilkie's presidential campaign doesn't get underway until just a few months before the 1940 convention. He made several speeches attacking the New Deal as a threat to freedom, as seeking to increase the powers of government. He has urged modification of the tax laws, a curb on New Deal regulatory agencies, a better attitude of government toward business. On foreign policy issues, Wilkie has not hidden his sympathy for the German conquered and the German threatened. He has opposed American intervention in the war. He advocates national defense, not as a step toward war, but as a protection against it. The political bosses can't stop Wendell Wilkie. Wilkie's running mate is Republican Senate leader Charles McNary of Oregon, known as a farm spokesman. Wilkie had not met his running mate prior to the convention. But neither Wendell Wilkie nor Charles McNary can stand against Franklin D. Roosevelt. Once again, the Republican hopes will be dashed against the fortress of the New Deal. Franklin D. Roosevelt, after eight years in the White House, is virtually certain to run for re-election. There have been moves to stop him from going after a third term, moves by Postmaster General James Farley, who directed FDR's two prior campaigns. Senators Glass and Byrd of Virginia, Senator Clark of Missouri, Senator McCarran of Nevada. They see a third term as possibly leading to dictatorship, possibly to life tenure, since an incumbency makes possible the creation of an irresistible political machine. The president keeps silent about the possibility of a third term. He sends the convention a message given to the 1,094 delegates by convention chairman Senator Alvin Barkley. The message? The delegates are free to choose any candidate they wish. But FDR's Secretary of Commerce, Harry Hopkins, stalks the convention, persuading the delegates that the war clouds over Europe mark the gravest crisis since the Civil War. To meet that crisis, says Hopkins, we must put our faith in a continued presidency, in FDR. And the delegates listen, and they nod. FDR will get his third term. But those opposing a third term are able to halt a stampede. They prevent nomination by acclamation. With the president finally renominated, the focus shifts to the vice presidential choice. Roosevelt's two-time running mate, John Garner of Texas, has swung away from a belief in the New Deal. Another man must be chosen. FDR's choice, Secretary of Agriculture Henry Wallace. 
a former Republican, son of President Harding's Secretary of Agriculture. Henry Wallace does not arouse the delegates' cheers. There is muttering from the floor, muttering of high-handed White House bullying of stormtrooper tactics. But FDR prevails in his choice. FDR himself does not attend this Democratic convention. He sits in the White House before a radio microphone speaking to the delegates and to Eleanor Roosevelt gathered in Chicago. They listen as FDR's words boom from a loudspeaker. It is with a very full heart that I speak tonight. I must confess that I do so with mixed feelings because I find myself, as almost everyone does, sooner or later in his lifetime, in a conflict between deep personal desire for retirement on the one hand and that quiet, invisible thing called conscience. Nearly every American is willing to do his share or her share to defend the United States. It is neither just nor efficient to permit that task to fall upon any one section or any one group. For every section and every group depend for their existence upon the survival of the nation as a whole. Lying awake as I have on many nights, I have asked myself whether I have the right as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy to call on men and women to serve their country or to train themselves to serve and at the same time decline to serve my country in my personal capacity if I am called upon to do so by the people of my country. Thomas E. Dewey comes to the 1948 Republican Convention in Philadelphia, fighting not only the opponents within his own party, but also a tradition. Never in its history has the GOP renominated a presidential also-ran. The smell of victory is in the air. The traditional keynote speakers scent the Democrats' weaknesses. Congressperson Claire Booth Luce of Connecticut spells it out for the cheering delegates. Let's waste no time measuring the unfortunate man in the White House against our specifications. Mr. Truman's time is short and his situation is hopeless. Frankly, frankly, he's a gone goose. But before he goes, I think we should admit that we owe him several debts of gratitude. We should be grateful to Mr. Truman that he tried to be president in 1944, and that with the gallant aid of the big city bosses, Kelly and Flynn and Pendergast and Haig, he didn't fail. If he had failed, our president today would be Mr. Henry Wallace. Providence rode straight with crooked lines when the Pendergrass machine gave us Mr. Truman, the colorless Mr. Truman, instead of the red Hank Wallace. And I think 
I think we should all be grateful, too, that Mr. Truman has so little dramatic talent. When there's a, um, a slump at the ballot box office, a real New Deal hero must be able to chew up the scenery. But uh, Mr. Truman is a man of phlegm and not of fire. He just can't read those old Bob Sherwood lines with the oomph that it takes to keep the, get the curtain calls in November. Now, you know, nobody, nobody would call Mr. Truman's three years in office the pause that refreshes. But they have given us a breathing space in which to refresh our memories on a great hunk of recent democratic history. Consider the makeup of the Democratic Party at its operational level. It's less a party than a podge. It's a mishmash of die-hard and fighting factions. Now you take the extreme right or the Jim Crow wing of the Democratic Party. Now that wing is led by um, a lot of lynch-loving bourbons, white-shirted race uh, supremacists of the Bilbo ill. At its best, that wing of the party is conservative, but it's seldom to be found at its best. It's generally waging a last-ditch fight on some progressive issue of national health or housing or education or labor. And at its worst, this Jim Crow wing of the Democratic Party is the most reactionary element in our American life. It's anti-Semitic, it's anti-Catholic, it's anti-foreign, it's anti-Diluvian. Chances are good. Dewey and Warren are confident that their campaign will end in victory. They had a united party, while the Democrats are deeply divided. Even the New York Times sees reasons for Republican optimism in 1948. And the Chicago Tribune will go even further come election night. But the day after that, Harry S. Truman will return to the White House. And Thomas E. Dewey, who beat one Republican jinx, will return to the ranks once again a private citizen. Mike O'Dell, KPFK producer from the 1970s. On February 7, 1950, the junior senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy, stood before the Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia, and waved a piece of paper, claiming on it he had 205 names of known communists who work within the federal government. And thus, McCarthy elevated himself to unofficial leader of the crusade against communism. Move forward to October of that same year as the Korean War begins, with Red China announcing to the world it will not stand idly by as American forces cross the 38th parallel. And just one month later, in November, during the midterm elections, the Republicans gained five Senate and 31 House seats, including a win by the freshman senator from California, Richard M. Nixon. Although the Democrats still control both, the shift to conservatism is well underway. By March of 1951, 
just six months after the beginning of the Korean War, Defense Secretary George Marshall announces the U.S. armed forces are now twice the size they were at the beginning of the conflict. In April, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg are found guilty and sentenced to death for conspiracy to commit espionage for the Soviet Union. Later that same month, General MacArthur is removed from his post by President Truman for arguing for complete victory in Korea. Then, on the 19th of the month, General MacArthur, speaking before a joint session of Congress, urges the U.S. to expand the war into communist China. Take all of this information in and understand that when General Dwight David Eisenhower, the former Supreme Commander of Allied Forces during the war, makes known his willingness to run for president on the Republican ticket, the mood of the country is such the race for president of the United States is essentially over before it even gets started. And so it is at the 1952 Republican National Convention, Governor Theodore McClellan places Ike's name in nomination as the Republican candidate. When I visited, when I visited Italy briefly two months ago, on the occasion of one of their national holidays, their most important, the communists in Genoa were staging one of their demonstrations. A woman journalist there said to me, I know nothing of your American politics, but I can tell you this. There is one man these communists hate with a depth and violence greater than they have for anyone else. And she mentioned the name of this same gallant American. After the first ballot, Ike is only nine votes short of the nomination. A 19-vote switch on the second ballot seals it, giving Dwight David Eisenhower and his running mate, Richard M. Nixon, a proper send-off as Ike begins his march on Washington. The 1956 DNC comes to Chicago prepared to try again to win Adlai Stevenson the presidency. He carried only nine states in 1952, and a seeming unity between Stevenson and former President Truman has once again erupted into a feud. But despite Truman's antipathy, the delegates will give Stevenson the nomination. Besides Truman, the only major opposition to Stevenson comes from the South, which is fighting his civil rights plank. But like the candidate himself, the civil rights platform will prevail despite the South. A young, little-known senator from Massachusetts named Kennedy gains national recognition when he nominates Adlai Stevenson. We have come today not merely to nominate a Democratic candidate, but to nominate a President of the United States. Sometimes, in the heat of a political convention, we forget the grave responsibilities which we, as delegates, possess. For we here today are selecting a man who must be more than something of a good candidate, more than a good politician or a good liberal or a good conservative. 
We are selecting the head of the most powerful nation on earth, the man who literally will hold in his hands the power of survival or destruction, of freedom or slavery. We are selecting here today the man who, for the next four years, will be guiding for good or evil, for better or worse, the destinies of our nation and, to a large extent, the destinies of the free world. Ladies and gentlemen of this convention, it is now my privilege to present to this convention as a candidate for President of the United States the name of the man uniquely qualified by virtue of his compassion, his conscience, and his courage to follow in the great tradition of Jefferson, Jackson, Wilson, Roosevelt, and the man from Independence. Fellow delegates, I give you the man from Libertyville, the next Democratic nominee and our next President of the United States, Adlai E. Stevenson. Future President John F. Kennedy. On the other side of the aisle, at the 1956 Republican National Convention, the mood is, for the most part, one of absolute confidence. It looks very likely President Eisenhower will again spend four years residing in the White House. Ike beat Adlai Stevenson in 1952, and there's no reason to think he shouldn't be able to do it once more. Here, he speaks to the delegates after receiving renomination. This is a good time to think about the future, for this convention is celebrating its 100th anniversary. And the centennial is an occasion, not just for recalling the inspiring past, but the point is this, our policies are right today only as they are designed to stand the test of tomorrow. The great Norwegian, Henrik Ibsen, once wrote, I hold that man is in the right who is most clearly in league with the future. Today I want to demonstrate the truth of a single proposition. The Republican Party is the party of the future. And he was right. In November, Ike and Nixon will handily defeat Adlai Stevenson. During the 1960 presidential primaries, the United States was increasingly overwhelmed by the threat of communism. Strains in the country's relationship with the Soviet Union had come to a breaking point when, in May, the Soviet Union shot down an American U-2 spy plane. In San Francisco, the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, was railing against supposed communists and communist supporters, including the Pacifica Radio Network. And a week before the Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles, the U.S. announces it will cut Cuba sugar imports by 95 percent. Despite all this, Pacifica makes its first moves as a radio network to cover a national party convention. But staying true to Pacifica's mission of bringing forth those voices rarely heard and oftentimes intentionally left out of the national dialogue, Pacifica station WBAI covered the 17th convention of the Communist Party of the United States in Harlem, New York. The exciting era in which we live 
is characterized by growing superiority of socialism over capitalism, by the building of communism in the world's first socialist state, by the liberation of colonial peoples in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, by Sputniks and Lunics. The achievements of mankind's noblest dreams are the talk of every town and hamlet, New York included. They are having a profound effect upon every aspect of human endeavor. The importance of our party cannot be overestimated. Small as it is, temporarily, it carries the banner of the future. We don't need to worry about our convention being historic. The crude and transparent attempts of the capitalist press to intervene and divide our ranks to set one personality against another are all backhanded testimony to the importance of our convention and of the American Communist Party. Comrades, we pledge here in New York to do everything possible to make this a great convention, a convention with confidence in the people of America, confidence in the socialist achievements of the whole world, and confidence in our own working class, in the unity of Negro and white, to march forward to new heights of achievements. It cannot be stressed enough the courage it took to broadcast the Communist Convention during that period of the Red Scare. It is acts like this that contribute to the public's perception of Pacifica, one of being fearless and sometimes a little too fearless. But this is precisely the mission of Pacifica, and its unique format, the first in the country of being entirely listener-supported, enables the brave program directors to make decisions like this. In Los Angeles, Senator John F. Kennedy rolls into the convention after a series of primary victories and momentum that cannot be stopped. The candidate closest to him in delegates is Lyndon Johnson from Texas. Despite their mutual dislike, out of courtesy and also thinking he'll refuse, Kennedy offers Johnson the vice presidency. Johnson accepts, and the Kennedy-Johnson ticket is born. In Chicago, at the Republican National Convention, Eisenhower's vice president, Richard Nixon, is in charge, negotiating a platform he can live with, while also acquiescing to his main rival, Governor Rockefeller of New York. The platform includes a controversial plank on defense, which President Eisenhower sees as a repudiation of his work. Feeling slighted by his protege, Eisenhower does not attend the convention, but does send along a telegraph congratulating Nixon, read to the convention floor by House Minority Leader Charles Halleck. This campaign will not be easy. Indeed, it will be a struggle right down to Election Day. But I am confident that you will attract to the cause of maintaining good government a large majority of the independent voters and even a great many discerning Democrats. These, together with the united efforts of all the members of our party, will ensure victory at the polls, signed Dwight D. Eisenhower. But Ike's brave words are in vain. It's a tough campaign, but in November, Nixon and Lodge will lose by a razor-thin edge to John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. You're listening to A Passel of Pomp 
and a circus of circumstance, historic convention coverage from the Pacifico Radio Archives. To hear more of the programs in which the clips of this documentary came, or to purchase this program, go to the Pacifica Radio Archives website at www.pacificaradioarchives.org or call 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230. Moving to 1964, we once more go to Mike Hodel's documentary and his colorful narrative. The obvious metaphor, the only metaphor, for the 1964 Democratic Convention is the cattle drive, with Lyndon Johnson firmly in the saddle, riding herd on the delegates, the platform, getting his political steers to market without losing any to raiders or rustlers or sickness, heading off any attempt to deviate from the trail, choosing an old partner to ride drag to bring up the rear without choking on the dust. The herd gathers peacefully enough in Atlantic City, moves without incident into the pens, goes through the political branding process, and is turned loose. The trail boss confident that they will make their own way to the proper political pen. Johnson is in the saddle because John F. Kennedy has been assassinated. The man who spoke of Camelot is succeeded by the man who uses earthier metaphors, who brings his western drawl to the place where the eastern accents once were king. And along the way, Johnson has cut out the mavericks in the herd, those with the Harvard twangs, those with the sophistication he lacks. But if John Kennedy is dead, his memory, his tradition lives. It lives not only in the minds of the delegates, but in the person of Robert Kennedy, still Attorney General of the United States, and one of the men Lyndon Johnson could neither rope nor brand. And Robert Kennedy keeps his brother John alive, using words from Romeo and Juliet. When he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars, and he will make the face of heaven so fine that all the world will be in love with night. Lyndon Johnson also invokes John Kennedy's memory, but his words have a pragmatic political purpose. Four years ago... One of our greatest Americans stood before this Democratic Convention, John F. Kennedy of the state of Massachusetts. We grieved at his loss, but we carried on, and we have fulfilled his program without flinching for one moment. In the last three days, the noble Democrats who are delegates to this convention have made a great start toward a great Democratic victory. You have built a platform on which I am proud to stand. That done, 
Johnson picks up the reins again, checks his gun for cleanliness, and rides out with his new partner, headed after the Republican outlaws, the man from Arizona, Barry Goldwater, and his sidekick from New York, William Miller. In November, Lyndon Johnson of Texas will nail their hides to the barn door. But the cattle drive does not sum up the convention entirely. In 1964, members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, after not being allowed to attend a local precinct meeting of the Democratic Party, formed the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. At the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party challenged the delegates for not addressing the concerns of the blacks in Mississippi. The Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was given a chance to speak in front of the Credentials Committee. One of the people to speak on behalf of the party was the Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. Ladies and gentlemen, if you value your party, if you value your nation, if you value the future of democratic government, you have no alternative but to recognize with full voice and vote the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Recognition of the Freedom Democratic Party would say to them that somewhere in this world that is a nation that cares about justice, that lives in democracy, and that ensures the rights of the downtrodden. The Credentials Committee meeting was to be televised until President Johnson held a last-minute press conference at the exact same time. Many felt the move was to keep the public from hearing any negative comments about the party. But the move backfired because the press still covered the event and was able to broadcast highlights on the evening news. One of the people who stood out that evening was a 45-year-old black woman sharecropper. It was her incredibly powerful personal story which moved many. Fannie Lou Hamer overcame enormous obstacles and two failed attempts at getting her voter registration card. But she finally got it and became an organizer in the civil rights movement and worked to register other blacks in Mississippi to vote. It was on the return trip from one of these clinics that Fannie Lou Hamer was beaten by two black prisoners who were forced to do so by Winona, Mississippi police. This is Fannie Lou Hamer describing the events of that day. She begins by quoting one of the white police officers. We gonna make you wish you was dead. And they led me out of that cell into another cell. And he gave a Negro prisoner a blackjack. And he ordered me to lay down on a bunk bed. And a Negro prisoner said, do you want me to beat her with this, sir? And he said, you're damn right, because if you don't, you know what I'll do for you. And I laid down on the bunk like he ordered me to do. And the first Negro beat me. He beat me until he was exalted. And after he beat, the state highway patrolman ordered the second Negro to take the blackjack. And during the time he was beating, I began to work my feet because that was a horrible experience. And the state highway patrolman ordered the first Negro that had beat to sit on my feet while the second one beat. And I just began to scream where I couldn't control it. And then the white man got up and began to beat me in my head. I have a blood clot now, and the artery to the left eye, and a permanent kidney injury on the right side from that beat. 
these are the things that we go through in the state of Mississippi just trying to be treated like a human being. But still, this is called a part of America. The white police officers involved in her beating were acquitted by an all-white jury. This injustice made Fannie Lou Hamer even more determined to fight for equal rights in Mississippi. After the convention, Malcolm X spoke to a group in Harlem, New York, about Mississippi and the convention in Atlantic City. So what happens in Mississippi in the South has a direct bearing on what happens to you and me here in Harlem. And likewise, out of the, the Democratic Party, which black people supported, recently, I think something, something like 97%, all of these crackers, and that's what they are, crackers, are, they belong to the Democratic Party. That's the party they belong to. Same one you belong to. Same one you support. Same one you say is going to get you this and get you that. Why, the base of the Democratic Party is in the South. It's the foundation of its authority is in the South. The head of the Democratic Party is sitting in the White House. He could have gotten Mrs. Hamer in Atlantic City. He could have opened up his mouth and had her seated. Hubert Humphrey could have opened his mouth and had her seated. Wagner, the mayor right here, could have opened up his mouth and used his weight and had her seated. Don't be talking about some crackers down in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. All of them are playing the same game. Lyndon B. Johnson is the head of the cracker party. Now, I don't want to be stepping on toes or saying things that you didn't think I was going to say. But don't ever, ever, ever call me up here to talk about Mississippi. It's, it's controlled right up here from the north. Mississippi is controlled from the north. Alabama is controlled from the north. These northern crackers are in cahoots with the southern crackers. Only these northern crackers smile in your face and show you their teeth. And they stick the knife in your back when you turn around. You at least know what that man down there is doing, and you know how to deal with it. So all I say is this. This is all I say, that when you start talking about one, talk about the other. When you start worrying about the part or the piece, worry about the whole. And if this piece is no good, the entire pie is no good because it all comes out of the same plate and it's made up out of the same ingredients. Wagner is a Democrat. He belongs to the same party as Eastman. Johnson is a Democrat. He belongs to the same party as Eastman. Now, Wagner was in Atlantic City. Ray Jones was in Atlantic City. Lyndon B. Johnson was in Atlantic City. Hubert Humphrey was in Atlantic City. The crackers that you voted for were in Atlantic City. What did they do for you when you wanted to sit down? They were quiet. They were silent. They said, don't rock the boat. You might get Goldwater elected. <laughs> Once again, Mike Hodell. There are two Democratic Party conventions in Chicago in August of 1968. One is inside the International Amphitheater with banners and placards and gavels and speeches. The other is in the streets and parks of Mayor Richard Daley's city with tear gas and rocks and mace and clubs, and most of all, with blood. And a cloud marked Vietnam hangs over both, tangling them together. 
separate the strands. Go back to a snowy winter in New Hampshire, when a northern senator named Eugene McCarthy tramps the streets, braves the cold, and challenges a president. Which I challenge a Democratic president. I challenge a particular policy in Vietnam. Move forward to a spring day when another senator, this one named Kennedy, announces he too will seek to take the nomination from the president. I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. Come forward a bit more when that president tells the nation he will not seek re-election. I shall not seek, and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Go to Los Angeles, where one man wins an election and loses his life. With that chronicle, come to Chicago in August of 1968. Come as a delegate with the proper credentials to get you past the police, into the amphitheater, into the hotel suites and the delegations. Hear the talk of Eugene McCarthy, the name of Edward Moore Kennedy, the politics of joy of Hubert Humphrey. Feel the unseen presence of Lyndon Johnson. Or come to what they are calling the Festival of Life, the street theater, the anti-war demonstrations, the hippies, the yippies, into the park, smell the incense, the marijuana, hear the music, hear the speeches, hear the laughter. Inside or outside, take your choice. Some of the delegates inside take offense at Chicago Mayor Richard Daley's tactics both inside the amphitheater and outside in the streets. Daley, himself a delegate, uses tactics inside the hall that are reminiscent of what his police are using outside. When the delegates protest, Mayor Daley tries to adjourn the convention, and the protest grows. I, will the convention be in order? Will the convention... Will the convention be... Will the sergeant-at-arms enforce order in the convention? Oh. Will the convention be in order? Will the convention be in order? Because may the chairman make a brief statement. May I make a brief statement? It is not in order to make a general motion to adjourn because that would kill the convention. The chair would gladly recognize the distinguished mayor of the city of Chicago to adjourn to a time certain such as 12 o'clock tomorrow. Mr. Chairman, I move to adjourn to 12 o'clock tomorrow. The, quest, the question is on the motion. So many is in favor of vote aye. Aye. Those opposed, no. The ayes have it. Accordingly, the House stands adjourned until 12 o'clock noon tomorrow. Convention Chairman Carl Albert. Senator Wayne Morse of Oregon describes the major conflict in the platform on Vietnam. Issues whether or not the Democratic Convention is going to vote today to continue to kill American boys in South Vietnam. We can't possibly justify this killing of our boys. We've got to have a change in policy. 
And I hope the Democratic Party will take advantage of the opportunity to unite the party, and they'll never unite this party unless they change the policy in Vietnam. But the convention refuses to heed Morse's words. It votes a plank supporting President Johnson's Vietnam War policies. Good evening. This is Pacifica Radio Chicago. This is Pacifica Radio's continuing coverage of the 1968 Democratic National Convention from the International Amphitheater in the Chicago Stockyards area. This is Steve Brookchester along with Dale Miner. Here at the amphitheater, we've had a long, very interesting, somewhat confused night here. <clears throat> Earlier this evening, the unit rule was abolished for at least this Democratic National Convention. Now we've just passed a vote on the seating of a minority group, a minority report on the Texas delegation, actually. And in that vote, which was considered, as well as the earlier vote, the test of Humphrey's strength, the Texas delegation will be seated as it was picked with Governor John Conley's Texas Democratic Party. That was a 1,200 to 800 vote in favor of seating the regular delegation. Dale? In a perfectly clear example of the differences between the events inside the convention in Chicago and those outside, this coverage from within the convention hall, hosted by Pacifica reporters Steve Bookchester and Dale Miner, shows that even on a supposedly eventful day, the pace is slow and the excitement minimal. But out on the streets, Pacifica reporters were in their element, covering the quickly changing action, the fiery speeches, and the violence. Throughout the 1960s, in Pacifica Radio, one name seemed to always be connected to the biggest events of that decade, Elsa Knight Thompson. True to form, she produced an award-winning documentary called A Night in Chicago about the events outside the convention that summer in 1968. This recording is universally acknowledged as one of the most quintessential Pacifica programs in the archives collection. Early yesterday evening, a marching line of demonstrators, two blocks long, 25 abreast, attempted to get down LaSalle Street to Grant Park, opposite Democratic headquarters in the Conrad Hilton. After attending a Black Panther rally, at which Bobby Seale, national chairman of the Panthers, spoke. Revolution in this country, that's a kind, is in fact people coming forth to demand freedom. Now, just a second. Now, the lesson that Minister of Defense U.E.P. Duke teaches that whenever the people disagree with the political decisions that's been made upon their heads, that whenever the people disagree with those political decisions, the racist power structure sends in guns and force to see that the people accept those political decisions. But we are here as revolutionaries to let them know that we refuse to accept those political decisions that maintain the oppression of our black people. But in Lincoln Park, the police moved in in force and under circumstances requiring some explanation. to uh, some of the demonstrators ran back into the park with a few sticks. The police are now, the police are now moving across in a, a rank, shooting tear gas, 
Some of the kids are ripping off leaves. They're holding their faces. You can see the tear gas in the air. They have large fire trucks with lights. The gas is around. My eyes are beginning to burn a little bit. I'm going to walk over. The police are walking forward with rifles and clubs out. They are moving over with gas masks. The area is completely lighted up. There's trucks with multiple lights on it. They have shot off tear gas. As I mentioned earlier, Allen Ginsberg and John Lusay came around. At my feet just now, it seems, was a tear gas or some kind of instrument. There's now a line of police in Hellman's. The light truck has been brought forward. There are a few brave photographers and others in the middle. I am now in line between the demonstrators on one side. I'm going to get out of the way a little bit as a few of the demonstrators are throwing rocks, etc. I had to quickly retreat as someone began to throw a few cans. I want to get close enough so they can see that the specific radio here and not police radio. You can begin to now feel the, the gas. They're moving back slowly. I don't know where we are in the park. I, there are no street signs. The truck is now spraying. The trucker. The truck is spraying. The truck is spraying a, a gas. The kids are now moving back into the street. And for the first time, this reporter can feel whatsoever it is. They're, they're fighting and pushing and shoving. I'm trying to get far enough back so I can see what's happening, but it's almost impossible to be able to give you a report as my eyes begin to burn. Bill Watson here, and I'm going to Pacifica reporter Bill Watson, inside Lincoln Park, Chicago, 1968, taken from Elsa Knight Thompson's award-winning documentary, A Night in Chicago. Coverage like this was only possible with the advent of the portable recorder. It was this kind of reporting that brought back the experience of the protesters to homes across the country. And it was a marked departure from the traditional, static, distant reporting. It was to forever change the profession of being a journalist and change the experience of receiving the news. 
The 1960s were coming to a close. Nixon is in the White House. The violence which took place in Chicago that summer of 1968 would forever change conventions. The media coverage of the Democratic National Convention that summer, of the chaos both inside and out, would do great damage to the Democratic Party's image. The party leaders decided a new, less controversial method of choosing nominees was necessary, and a commission headed by George McGovern settled on the primary election. Since then, both parties rely on the system, and by the time each party convenes, there's no longer any mystery or suspense or any chance of controversy. A new age of conventions was to dawn in 1972 in Miami. Both the Republicans and Democrats will meet in that city, and there will be almost no excitement left inside the convention walls. Outside, on the streets of Miami, that is where the action will be. You're listening to A Passel of Pomp and a Circus of Circumstance, historic convention coverage from the Pacifica Radio Archives. This program was executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and Brian DeShazer, produced and edited by Christopher Sprinkle, written by Christopher Sprinkle and Mike Hodell, technical direction by Mark Torres. Pacifica producers who throughout the years produced the audio used in this documentary include Mike Hodell, Elsa Knight-Thompson, Bill Watson, Gavin Duffy, Mad Dog Lubowski, Charles Bell, Jim Berlin, Kevin Stern, Amy Goodman, Jeremy Scahill, Larry Bensky, Samori Marksman, Tom Porter, Wendell Harper, and numerous other anonymous producers from Pacifica Station's KPFA Berkeley, KPFK Los Angeles, WBAI New York, WPFW Washington, D.C., and KPFT Houston. The music heard throughout this documentary was performed by Longwave, the Nortec Collective, Sigaross, Lisa Gerard and Peter Bork, Faithless, Lowe, Bernard Harriman, In Excess, Three Mile Pilot, The Karminsky Experience, Kruder and Dorfmeister, The Postal Service, Tosca, Pinback, Jan Tiersen, and Zero Seven. To hear more of the programs in which the clips of this documentary came, or to purchase this program, go to the Pacifica Radio Archives website at www.pacificaradioarchives.org or call 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230. This program is dedicated to the late KPFK producer Mike Hodell. This has been a production of the Pacifica Radio Archives. I'm Amy Goodman.